Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and joining me today is my co-host, is Little Red Hello. Buck. Today we have a very special guest in our virtual studio, an acclaimed science fiction author, futurist, and scientist, David Brin. Welcome. Well, hello, Kip and Red, uh, <laughs> and hello to all of uh, you out there in the uh, Podlandia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to have you here. So we've been working on this podcast series about your Uplift universe for roughly the past year, mm -hmm. off and on. Uh, it took a while to plan it all out and get it started, but here we are. And we just finished our final episode on Heaven's Reach a few weeks ago. Two. It feels like weeks ago. There's something that's been near and dear to my heart since I was a little teen scrounging books from my library's free shelf. Uh, it's also how I started reading Foundation. And it's been a joy to share them with Red the past year. One choice that we made was to start our podcast series with Star Tide Rising instead of Sundiver because of what we thought was a pretty large jump in stylistic originality. Can you tell us a little bit about why Sundiver was so different from subsequent books? We've been dying to know. Well, your first novel always no matter how many times you rewrite it, and I, and I rewrite a fair amount. As a matter of fact, we just re-edited and republished all five of those novels. Yes. Uh, let's see now, uh, four of them through Open Road, but I still had to do the editing process, and I, uh, I edit more systematically than all but a few other authors. Uh, for instance, I have a coterie of about 40 pre-readers who are ferocious and I fly just about everything past selected groups of them uh, because criticism is the only known antidote to error. Uh, it's uh, cetokate. Um, criticism is the only known antidote to error and most of human history is a result of oligarchs and kings and theocrats and lords being able to do the natural human thing, especially the male thing, and that's suppress criticism. And that's why they were so such horrible practitioners of governance. So if you want to get better at something, you need to teach yourself to be hungry for the very thing that hurts. <laughs> and that is criticism. That doesn't mean you have to do everything every, all your critics uh, say you should do. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't. It's your job to fix it. But it's also your job to notice when two or more readers felt uncomfortable or had to read, even read the same passage twice to understand it, even if they enjoyed that scene. Because it's your job in a sadomasochistic relationship, and that's what it is. <laughs> it's your job to frustrate the reader uh, deliciously. It's your job to keep them on the edges of their seats, to make the book hard to put down in order to feed the cat, in order to do their homework, in order to do the project for work, in order to feed their young. And if you succeed at all of those things, if you make almost get them fired, if you almost give them a bad grade, <laughs> if you have their kids rebel and great raid the cereal cabinet at eight because they're tired of waiting for you, they will buy your next book. And that's the only important thing. Seriously, their pain is of no significance to you. You're in a state of masochistic relationship. And one of the things that I teach bright coming authors is you have to get into the habit of being the sadist here. That means you're going to dangle things in front of 
the reader, just like a cat laser, because that's what supposedly these <laughs> alien UAPs are. I have a separate thing that I've done lately, and I'll put it in chat, but uh, I, I'm extremely down on this whole zealotry to assume that these unidentified aerial phenomena, which are, you know, they exist, the government says so, and we've seen the signs, sure. are, are actually silvery guys in spaceships. That's absurd. <laughs> sure, I've spent all my life since I was eight obsessed with the alien. Uh, there's probably no one alive who has uh, studied notions of the alien, both within and outside of humanity, more than I have. But you know, I just consider that having that be our first go-to is that UAPs are UFOs and that UFOs are, are silvery guys twirling wheat fields and buzzing us. I think that's absurd. So we yeah. can get to that. But the point about that you were... Uh, it's I'm beginning to sound senile, right? <laughs> no, you're fine. We're hanging on every word, and I already have follow-up questions about what you've yes. been talking about. <laughs> I'm bringing it around full circle. This is why when I teach writing, I tell my students, your first extensive work or novel should be a murder mystery. I don't care if you want to do romance or uh, adventure or sci-fi, space opera, fantasy. In all of those genres, if you are an amateur and you don't know how to plot and you find yourself two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way into the book and you don't know how to get a good plot resolution. Uh, all you do is you add more kissy, kissy, kissy. You add more star-spanning explosions. You add more, you know, dra another dragon uh, to hide the fact that you don't know what you're doing. Whereas in a murder mystery, really, there is no way to finagle or pretend that you know what you're doing. Either you know how to do the twist and then the double twist and then the final revelation in the last quarter of the book, or you don't. And uh, that's why I did my first novel as a science fiction murder mystery, Sundiver. Believe it or not, I actually brought all of that around full circle. <laughs> that so was pretty important. <laughs> now I know how to still use some myelinated nerves. The point is that, <laughs> however, I am sensitive enough about it to point that out. Where were we again? The point is that Sundiver was a murder mystery in which the murder victim is dumped into the sun. It makes a CSI a little wee bit difficult. True. But I have been told for 40 years that people have, when they got to the whodunit and then the secondary whodunit, they have felt what you're supposed to feel in a murder mystery. And what you're supposed to feel is there are three ways the reader can react when they find out what the story arc was about in a murder mystery. And one is to slap their forehead and say, huh, where the heck did that come from? The second way to respond is, of course, I saw it a mile away. Now, are either of those satisfying? Will you buy that writer's next book? The no. third response is a sudden heart-pounding realization of shock and self-loathing that the reader is just too stupid to have gotten it. <laughs> barely, 
one IQ point more, and I would have known. If I had just paid more... Oh, it's all there, you bastard. <laughs> you want the reader to tear the book in half, throw it out the window, and dive after it. No matter what, how many stories up they are. This is the essence of good writing. Now, Sundiver, I did all those things, and it's a darn good murder mystery. But is it any surprise that in a couple of years after that book came out, I perhaps matured a little as a writer? <laughs> I mean, it's really not very surprising. Neither of us is surprised that you matured a little. That was a... We're just surprised that you matured a whole yes, ton. exactly. Mm-hmm. It was huge. Well... Let's bear in mind that when I wrote Sundar I was working for Hughes Aircraft, I mean Hughes Aircraft, and uh, I was then uh, in graduate school, and I was working on my darn PhD. When Startide Rising came out, I had received my PhD, uh, and I was starting to get hints that became a tsunami after Startide that perhaps what I thought was going to be my hobby civilization disagreed about the order in of my priorities uh, civilization <laughs> made it pretty darn clear that being a scientist i'm a consultant with nasa's innovative and advanced concepts program i still do science here and there i invent things i have patents but civilization has made it pretty clear Bryn, we want your freaking stories as they said to frank zappa uh, when he was messing with audiences and and messing with their brains again and again and again. Shut up and play your damn guitar! (laughs) (laughs) And so we had a three-disc album called Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, Son of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, and Bride of Son of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, and it was all guitar playing, and it was gorgeous. And his son, Dweezil, you've got to look up Dweezil Zappa doing um, a performance of his dad's so my, my dad is a big fan of Dweezil. Um, uh, Orange County lumber truck. Um, he, 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 wow. Talk about handicapping yourself as a dad and, and still your kids love you. <laughs> anyway, so to get back to where... No, I think we completed where I we think were. we did. I can say more about writing. I think we're good with that one. Yeah. I'll say a lot more about writing, but I have provided in chat links to the uh, web page for Star Tide Rising, which leads to people being able to follow up on the Uplift universe, the reasons why uh, I talk about, you know, uplifted animals. Um, I grew up reading H.G. Wells and Cordwainer Smith and uh, Pierre Boulle's uh, Planet of the Apes. And so I was not the first to talk about uplifting other creatures to full effective sapiens. What I was tired of was this standard reflexive guilt trip. Oh, we're going to enslave them, and therefore they will, you know, be the underdogs and rebel. I'm always interested in what if the story is set in a world that already read and absorbed those lessons. See, that's my big complaint about Avatar. The world, it's a wonderful movie. But uh, the world in which Jake Scully uh, sees his company and Earth rapaciously repeating the um, crimes of colonialism 
is obviously a human civilization that never saw the movie Avatar. <laughs> That's an interesting <sighs> Or any of the other guilt trips. Whereas 10 minutes of added stuff at the beginning, and this is in my new nonfiction book, Vivid Tomorrows, just five minutes of early stuff showing that humanity appointed a decent governor who was negotiating with the moderate Navi, and they, the, the floating island that they were negotiating on is blown up, and Sigourney's the only survivor. Well, now, what's the lesson there, if you added just that much? Well, the lesson there is not that humans are utterly hopeless, but that we've got to try harder, you see. And that's a different lesson. See, Dances with Wolves is set in the past, and we know that our ancestors behaved that way, and we're trying to learn better. But Avatar is set in the future, and the lesson there is that we will never learn, and it's useless to even try. And that I don't like. But that essay is one of many in my latest nonfiction book, which I have linked in the chat, uh, called Vivid Tomorrows, Science Fiction in Hollywood. And one of my top points is that science, Hollywood science fiction, for all its faults, and it has many faults, has been largely responsible for the survival of the human race the last 40 to 50 years because of the dire warnings and what I call self-preventing prophecies. Prophecies that are so vivid that they get people to prevent them from coming true. Nuclear war. Different scenarios for how it might happen accidentally were discussed in Dr. Strangelove, On the Beach, Failsafe, War Games, uh, Testament, The Day After. And all of them, we later learned, our top officials and officers actually took measures. The China Syndrome regarding nuclear power. Nothing ever uh, recruited as many environmentalists as the film Soylent Green, based on my friend <laughs> uh, Harry Harrison's novel, Make Room, Make Room. Of course, the granddaddy of self-preventing prophecies, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Now, I have, have I created one of these masterwork self-preventing prophecies? Some people claim that they were girded to fight for civilization by the postman. But, you know, I don't think that it really ranks there with those others. Uh, it was too complicated, for one thing, and for a very simple story. Hmm. Um, and if you like, at some point, uh, one of the questions you can ask is, Costner? <laughs> uh, <but can> I... <laughs> Tom Petty's oh. in that movie, too. Well, <laughs> Well, I, I, I will say that you moved this biology student into being a biology student. Well, well, well. <laughs> I am deeply honored, and perhaps it will turn out to be the most important thing I ever did in my life. Um, I am pretty sure, I just realized in the last three years, I may have done the most important thing in my life at age 19 when I helped to run the clean air car race from MIT to Caltech, and I'm going to put into chat a link to that. If you look, you'll see that the centerfold of Life magazine in that issue was showing all the cars for the clean air car race at MIT before we took off, and all the teams next to their cars, and then the organizing oh, committee wow. in the front row. And there in the centerfold of Life magazine, on the lower right, lower left, sorry, is me, and it was covered every night on the CBS Evening News. 
I'm standing next to the world's first hybrid vehicle. It had regenerative braking. It had the whole thing, but it had no computers. Therefore, a skilled student engineer had to write the ride in the passenger seat, adjusting dials the entire way across the continent. <laughs> oh, no. About 40 or 50 oh, wow. miles, vastly more busy than the driver. <laughs> the, um, and that vehicle dis disappeared into Ann Arbor Labs and came out decades later as the Prius. And that was an important outcome. But the most important by far were the two most boring cars in the race. They ran on unleaded gas. They crossed the country without a single mechanical problem and destroyed the narrative of the Ethel Corporation that leaded gas was necessary in order to protect engines. And within six months, yep. the bill came out of committee that banned lead and gasoline. And we boomers are still probably brain poisoned <laughs> by it because we're, but we're the last generation to be poisoned by lead and gas. Uh, it, it, Such the, an important change. In yeah. the 70s and 80s, when we were in our maximum crime years, crime skyrocketed. It went down. It was not maintained by the Gen Xers and others because they're better people. And take a look at American politics today. Dominated by who? Boomers. Okay, boomers. So all the boomers the that won't retire. The brain, damage, the brain damage is a gift that keeps on giving. But I said it may be the most important thing I ever did was to help run uh, that race that probably accelerated that might have. Who knows? That might have accelerated the law against lead and gas by a year or two. Anyway, uh, so, uh, but, but now, you, you, now you, you know, this is, a, place, this is a... second place to the most important thing I ever did, which was inspire Kip to enter biology. <laughs> My sister wor probably works on a descendant of that car. She works for GM, hybrid electric vehicles, designing uh, electric cars and battery really? systems. Really? I didn't know that. So, That's cool. Uh, refer, refer her to that, that issue. It, it's the issue with the the cover story of that issue was 50th anniversary of women getting the vote. There you go. Wow. Yeah, I will definitely send her this picture I'm staring at right now. All right. Well, send her the link. In any event, um, okay. let's get back to your um, audience's uh, favorite topics. Like, I, okay. I'm su supplying you with a link to my article of advice for bright, young, up-and-coming authors. And also a link to one of my two YA series. I have one YA series that I'm writing with a bright young author um, uh, called the High Horizon series, and it's all about aliens kidnapping a California high school and living to regret it. Um, <laughs> and um, okay. the other series is farmed out to other authors, so it's called David Brin's Out of Time series, and that one has a premise that was very carefully tuned uh, to appeal to young people. What happens is, uh, and, and it answers this insanity of horrible Hunger Games-style uh, dystopias that make no sense at all. The only purpose of President Slow, Snow in the Capitol in that awful series is to uh, drip blood from their jaws so that they can be maximally evil and uh, fought by the brave rebels. And that's the entire 
Lucasian justification for the Empire in Star Wars, um, which makes no sense at all. But mm. the um, I have another <laughs> book called Star Wars on Trial, in which I was the prosecuting attorney, and one of uh, Lucas's novelizers was the defense attorney. And we called witnesses back and forth for seven different indictments against Star Wars. And it was one of the most fun books I've ever been involved with because our back and forth with these uh, witnesses and counter witnesses, um, we were constantly objecting and the droid judge was finding us and all sorts of things. That was fun. But I'm notorious <laughs> in, um, in um, deeply disliking what Star Wars became. Uh, the first two movies. Yeah. Oh, geez. But, uh, it's, <laughs> I believe Yoda is probably the most evil character ever in the oh. history of all mythology. Oh, you're one you're of those You're one of people. the empires, the good guys. <laughs> I, no. <laughs> no, no, this does different. Okay. Of course not. No. It's just that what I've never Yoda heard does, that Yoda is evil. I've never heard this argument. There is one wise, air quotes, wise thing that Yoda says ever in any of these stories. Not one that's actually bona fide-wise. And his decisions lead to more fictitious death than any legend or story, novel or film series in all of the history of our species. Wow. On the order of several trillion people of, of various shapes and I, this is this is new to me. This is not something I've heard before. It's absolutely grotesquely evil. I'm just going to give you one example. We can circle back to it if you want. I'm going to give you one example. Um, he meets he meets young Anakin. Is too filled with fear. He is. This is the kid we just watched defeat an entire bunch of bad guys and and race this yep. thing across the the desert. I will not train him. I will not. The youngest and most inexperienced Jedi Master, he will train him. What? Yep. He's dangerous and you, and, you, and you don't take... But the worst of all is leaving mom in slavery when it would take petty cash right? to buy her off of Tatooine oh, and geez. install her in a yep. nice apartment on Coruscant where she could keep the dangerous Bob calm. <laughs> I mean, we're talking just... <laughs> Evil after evil. But the one that nobody gets is when in oh, just Attack of the Clones, is it? Whatever the hell. Uh, suddenly, Yoda shows up commanding the entire clone army that he bought. Excuse me! Nobody noticed that he sent all the Jedi into a suicide charge so that 90% of them would be killed? And then shows up at the very next moment with his army of clones that the, that the brilliant clone masters said was paid for by the Jedi Council and we were given no reason to doubt them. Oh. I mean, we are talking a scene of absolutely spectacular betrayal and not one person I have seen anywhere has pointed out the blatant obviousness that you send the Republic's core of secret agents in a mass suicide charge the instant before you show up with a massive army that would have made it completely unnecessary. 
I actually hadn't thought about that one. All right. So, okay. You see, so, that, I, 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 I try not to think about uh, the prequel. Yes. <laughs> you know what? We got Nick. The first prequel, the one everybody hates with Jar Jar, is one of my favorites. At least it was fun. <sighs> I like pod racing. Uh, that's the only good thing. That's the only good <laughs> no, thing in that whole movie. No. The whole setup no, is ridiculous. No. Okay, wait, wait, stop. Stop. We got to stop because this is not a, this is not a prequels episode. <laughs> the most ridiculous thing in that movie is that the Jedi Knights have no way to get replacement parts without betting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, but even the setup, of, the setup, the <laughs> setup, why are we having a trade embargo? Why is the trade company? We got to, we got to get off this subject. Because... <laughs> the scroll at the beginning of that movie. I mean, my God, I was just at the edge of my. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till uh-huh. Ash listens to this. Well, it's going to be so great. <laughs> brought out Lucas. The evil stopped, but the stupid was intensified. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yes. Um, look, yes. one of the things I point out is the fundamental, putting aside the stupid, the fundamental difference is to be seen in the allegory of the ship. George Lucas loved pre-World War II flying ace movies, World War I fight, fighters, banking against the air, zooping and zipping. And so his ships, the the most important ships are a knight's steed. So it's no accident that his whole series is very mythological, like um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's like El Cid. It's like um, uh, Don Quixote. There is room on a World War I fighter plane for a little gunner, or a droid, or a drone, or a squire. What there's not room for is the Republic. So the Republic is just this cartoon victim that never does anything. And I mean doesn't not do anything right. It doesn't do anything. And J.J. Abrams stayed with that. He, he had this super, super gun destroy the Republic. What? I know, right? Just another yeah. big Death Star. Gun shoots yeah. across the galaxy and destroys 10,000 planets. And you can, like, see it on the web. Oh. For the convenience of denying the rebels any meaningful help. But all you had to do to do that was create a political situation in which the Republic's fleet is stymied by an opponent fleet. And you would still get to do all the same rebel stuff <laughs> without destroying 10,000 planets and a quadrillion living beings just for a plot convenience. Oh, all right, so the ship, the ship in Star Wars is a, is a little World War I fighter plane. What is the ship? Okay. It's Air Force. What is the ship in Star Trek? It's a na- The aircraft carrier. It's a naval vessel. Actually, Battlestar Galactica is an aircraft carrier. The Star Trek Enterprise is the beagle. It, it's, it goes and does everything. It makes contact with strange new species. It can fight if it has to. And a naval yep. vessel yep. does not have to have a god at the tiller, a silk scarf-wearing demigod. Instead, the, the naval vessel's captain is merely, she's merely way above average. And that's more interesting. In every episode, she needs help from several other way above average crew folk. And so it's about what our descendants might be. 
not about them being mutant demigods. And that's the difference between fantasy and science fiction. Fantasy is the mother genre. It goes back to Gilgamesh. It goes back to um, the Iliad, the Odyssey. And uh, extravagant things happen, sure, but they happen to demigods. Siegfried, you know, and, and the ring cycle. And all the Trojans and the Greeks can do is stare in amazement as Achilles sweeps them down with, with a scythe. Science fiction is more about what we might do. It's about change and it's about the possibility that things might be different. And in Star Trek, the ship is large enough to carry along the Federation. How many episodes is the Federation, its rules, its laws, its traditions, its failings, a topic? Probably on the order of half of all episodes. The Federation is a topic. It's discussed. It's there on the ship. It does things. The Prime Directive, sure. Well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Anyway... Rat, rat mode off on Star Trek. Let's talk to what you have written down there. And you're okay. I, you know what? I think we can actually tie this into a question that I've already written down. Okay. If Star Trek is akin to the Beagle, what would you liken Streaker to? I have compared parts of Streaker's journey to the Odyssey in my comparisons. Various gifts from gods, etc. Various places that it's had to hide out for extended periods of time until it gets over that specific crisis and then it continues on its journey until it hits the next roadblock well that's a very interesting comparison and streaker is a character even though you only see her through the eyes of of, of the human and dolphin and alien characters i especially in the second trilogy enjoyed the five uh, kids who have their adventures inspired by Mark Twain and not a single one of them is human. Um, we love yes. them. Yeah, they, they, we they, do. They, I really like them. I actually have about a quarter of another Jijo novel written that I haven't gone back to in 10 years because what I really want, what my wife wants me to write, what everybody asks me to write is the other half of what happened after Star Tide Rising. The first half is the adventures of Streaker, and big stuff happens. You know, the five galaxies are never the same. Um, And uh, Jillian Baskin, you know, and and the uh, and the dolphins will they make it home? And they they meet all the different layers of galactic society, including the machine and the hydrogen life forms and. It's, uh, to some extent, very much like uh, Odysseus's ship in the Odyssey because, you know, they, they go from one place to another, accumulating powers mm-hmm. um, yep. and, and accumulating insight. But there is the other story that people ask me to, to get around to, and that is I left six crew from Streaker stranded on a poisonous ocean world Let's see now, close to 40 years ago. And I am getting hate mail from my younger younger self. And I can't remember how or why I sent these messages. But it's sort of like Martin McFly out there on the street. Uh, 
you know, there was no internet or email then. These things are really scary. <laughs> and they say, they say, get on with it, old man. Get on with it. So I guess I better. I, I got to say that one of the great joys, I guess you could call it, um, when we were reviewing these books was the constant argument as to what happened to Pereki and Tom Worley. Like, the three of us who were reviewing the books, we thoroughly enjoyed arguing about it. And so um, if you write, ever get... Write down, write down your suggestions. I'll listen. <laughs> uh, oh no, my God. no. <laughs> we no don't, I don't even know if I want to know. <laughs> Now's your chance to have some influence. I have, I have some idea, but you know, I write differently than a lot of people do. I mean, I have written from outline my novel in which I completed Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation and Robots universe called Foundation Triumph. Mm -hmm. I wrote from a very specific outline because it wasn't my universe and I had to be faithful to Isaac and Janet Asimov said, adored it. I tied together all the loose ends that he couldn't um, get to and brought everything full circle. Also, my collaboration with Gregory Benford, Heart of the Comet. And I get involved in outlines for the Out of Time series. I was starting to tell you about uh, that series. Uh, <clears throat> what happens is, um, instead of the standard cliched dystopia the future in the 24th century, we've actually succeeded in making a beautiful civilization. And they've been living in a utopia for about 150 years. And suddenly, all the different races who were stuck in their uh, solar system by that meanie Einstein, all of a sudden, they all get teleportation at the same time. So it's a land rush out there. And all of a sudden, humanity needs diplomats, warriors, spies, liars and they've forgotten how in theory they know how with practice they'll relearn these arts but they don't have time so a genius turns the teleportation on its side and goes back yanks forward in time the heroes who saved the world because mm. a lot of them had this grit this this courage this ability to adapt on the circumstances only they can't grab those heroes per se, because here's the MacGuffin that makes it a great, I think, YA series. Uh, any adult who tries to teleport farther than Mars dies. So the first ships that went through, all the adults died, and the teenagers had to crash land them on these oh, planets. This That's actually sounds like a pretty cool... You. And the only people who can go and rescue them are other teenagers. So talk about a, what we used to call wet dream for teens. <laughs> uh, I think so, it's still called that. Uh, what happens is they yank, they always yank some kid from the 2020s, but it's not the person who in the 2050s will, you know, be part of saving the world. It's a teen jerk in high school going, nope, nope, I'm such a dope. And they take him into the future and say, you're one of our heroes. Come, you know, we want you to go on this mission. And the response is, who, me? <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's, that's a, um, a formula that we have five novels 
out there with great new covers and um i hope people will enjoy them and i gave you a link i'll have to pick yeah. these up yeah. and i seem to have avoided your question did you notice how masterfully i distracted from that <laughs> uh, I, i've been noticing next that. question um, red maybe this is time for my, your uh for your kids yeah. question okay. by the way you have a 19 year old and an 18 year old it's not too late for them to get mired in this series oh no i i read ya like good ya right. i still read it right. um so my youngest is an aspiring writer and he said that asking you where you get your ideas is a stupid question and that the better question is how do you stick through the process of making an idea into a story well most of the time um i said i wrote from an outline a couple of times but most mostly i dive in and that means that the beginnings of my novels are always torture because I just don't know where I'm going sometimes. But fortunately, my methods, uh, my system works well with that. I write the first fifth of the novel. By then, I think I have an idea where it's going. I edit it and then I um, send it to a few of my pre-readers, get feedback, uh, incorporate the feedback, build momentum and write another fifth. Now I've got 40% of the novel, and now I really know where it's going. So I circulate that, get feedback, and uh, write another fifth, and now I've got 60% of a novel, and now I actually know where the novel's going. And do it again, and then I get 80% of the way in, and of course now I finally realize what the novel is about. Well, that process, the beginning, is massaged and redone five times. But if I do anything really well, it's at the end of a novel. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I, I, my endings are always, always the best parts of the books. And that was not always true for a lot of, um, a lot of writers. For instance, Heinlein. He would get to, uh, three quarters of the way or two thirds of the way into a book, give you a really nice, satisfying climax, and then have no idea where to go next. So he'd just talk. And he'd talk, and he talked, and he talked, and he talked, and he talked. In some cases, that wasn't a bad thing. His best book is Beyond This Horizon, and the first half is crap, with all of its action and adventure and all of that. But the last half, with all the talk, 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 is absolutely riveting. So it's not always a bad thing, but uh, that's not how I work. We would have worked, I, I think we would have been a good collaborative team. So... Anyway, uh, I, 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 I read, I provided uh, some links. I appreciate that, I that very much. Help. One of the things I lead my students in is a chant death to adjectives. <laughs> um, get rid of your adjectives, uh, and then you can splice some back in. But they are crutches. But the number one thing to do is, once you've done a chapter, do a global for the word had. H-A-D. Mm-hmm. If you see a whole lot of them, or apostrophe D, um, then you're doing something really, really wrong. You're doing a lot of narrator dumps. And the same information should be revealed in internal thoughts, in conversation, in action, or don't reveal it until later. <laughs> but if you're using the word had maybe once per page, that's a lot. But if you're using it six, seven, eight times per page, you got a real problem and you're not a pro. 
And the same holds to a slightly lesser extent with was and were. And just do the global and see how they, they pop out. And in almost every case, it'll be you, the author, lecturing the reader about what happened instead of seeing it happen or being thought about by the character. So you're destroying the character's point of view. And there's a little advice for you, and you can find more at the advice column in my website that these folks will have featured underneath. I highly recommend um, some of the advice. I I, I linked to her um, some of the advice uh, um, booklets of my dear friend Nancy Cress, who long ago should have been a grandmaster of science fiction. And she wrote one of the um, out-of-time novels, and she is a real master. And she has little books uh, that teach things like point of view. And I okay. highly Okay. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure that number two son is going to be very happy to hear this part. All right. Well, tell him, tell him I, what I wrote in the email to you, that we expect him to become the Kwisatz Haderach of <laughs> That would be lovely. I would love that. Yeah, well, I don't know. The Kwisatz Haderach doesn't behave very well. No, he doesn't. Um, no, no, but it would just... Especially not no. to his mother. And yes, yes. So here's the fact is, I will say that to him, and he won't know what I'm talking about, because I still haven't gotten him to redo. <laughs> oh, well. There um, is a pretty good movie. It, uh, the first movie was good, yeah. The one that, or so the, the one that just came out, I enjoyed. So do we want to still talk about writing, or we want to go back to Uplift? Oh, let's go back to Uplift. And let's go back to Jillian and Tom and their separation on the poisonous metal shores of Kithrop. What made you decide to keep Jillian and split Tom off? Um, I mean... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought Tom? it was a sadomasochistic relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> people, have, people have cried. <laughs> I, I absolutely love the choice to keep Jillian instead of Tom, but I'm just wondering, why'd you choose her? Well, because the dolphin ship can get to Jijo. I mean, he's going to have he's going to have enough trouble with uh, Hikahi and Krydaiki and Toshio. He's going to have enough trouble. He's going to have enough enough pro- problems, you know. And I I think well to be honest, uh, I hope he doesn't uh, stab me or something. But I think uh, Jillian is a better character. I mean, I I think she's I think she's a great character. She is. She's got uh, I, I I agree. Let me let me let me say this. In, in this day and age when all of the institutions of science fiction have been taken over by the uh, Wisconsin science fiction uh, crowd, WISCON, which was for many years the main feminist science fiction uh, convention, you know, you have to decide uh, what you're going to do. And uh, the fact of the matter is that the direction we need to go in is the direction they're pointing at. You know, make up for past uh, disadvantages, reach out to all sorts of cultures, uh, Afrofuturism and all that sort of thing. Well, this is absolutely the right direction. Uh, I could do without some of the yelling um, and I could do without some of the prejudice against ortho white males. Since science fiction really was always the friendliest new ideas of all literary genres and the friendliest, except for a couple of ghetto 
pink ghetto genres, uh, was the friendliest to brash, bold, and uh, women authors. I mean, I was a student of Ursula Le Guin's. I'm a friend of C.J. Cherry. Uh, I grew up reading Andre Norton. So why do I raise all that? Because I have found that it's necessary for me to point out that in the 80s, I was one of the few authors reaching out to other cultures, trying to um, get you know, more involvement, more awareness of writers in Eastern Europe and in and, and Japanese science fiction and, and things like that. My very first character in my very first completed work was half African, half um, Native American with, uh, with a mental disorder, uh, Jacob Demois, uh, Jacob Alvarez Demois. And, yep. you know, Glory Season was all about the, the, the pros and cons of the um, society that, that has redesigned human reproduction so that men are kind of cute and unnecessary most of the time. Um, I, I think I put in my chops on all this. I have Native American characters in half a dozen books uh, back in the 80s. So if that sounds like I'm sensitive about, I mean, my novel Existence, much more recent novel, uh, has five different mm -hmm. autistic characters and a blurb from Temple Grandin. So, you know, if, if I sound a little bit like I'm protesting too much, it's partly because I think that in this era we have to recognize that while the direction is the right one, maybe we don't have to cast quite so much so much of a reflexive disdain over the past of a genre that's been very, very good in each decade's context. I mean, Samuel uh, Chip Delaney was a product of the 1960s, you know? Yep. My pal Steve Barnes and I went to high school together. You know, we, 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 we've been there the whole time, and I just think it's not fair to ignore that fact. So there's a little rant for you. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, yeah and uh, you also had ethical non-monogamy in the Uplift series. Oh, the what? Especially in the... Sorry, I, I was like hiccuping during that. You also had ethical non-monogamy in the Uplift series, especially among chimpanzees. Oh yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I have yep. to put myself in the shoes of the characters. And if I'm going to talk about chimpanzees, um, it's cheating to just make them furry... Um, humans? Humans. You know, you've got to squint and attempt to empathize with what appears to be their natural culture. When they're uplifted, they're going to be modified in our direction. And that makes life yep. easier for the writer, but it doesn't mean <laughs> doesn't mean they're not going to carry a lot of baggage from the um, from the past. Uh, my my lead character in existence is part of a Heinleinian what's called line family. He has husbands and wives, and I make it very clear that he is, leans much harder toward the former than the latter. So, I mean, what's a guy have to do? I mean, you know, uh, according to some of some folks, roll over and die. But you know, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, all right. Well, we're uh, we're at close to an hour, but I'll take a couple more questions. 
I have a question that technically Kip was assigned, ask. but I'm going to ask it. What genetic changes do you think that the human race would benefit from? And what do you think we shouldn't change? How do we weigh those sorts of things? Well, I'm reading a new book that's coming out called Run, Lab, Rat, Run by Sean C. Butler, a young author. I, one of, most of what I read these days is books that were sent to me for blurbs, and it's very good. And it's about, you know, this, the range of possible modifications that we might do. And uh, Ray Kurzweil says that if we can combine with the machines, we might find a soft landing. Well, in my um, collection, The Best of David Brin, which just came out um, and I have linked to in your, uh, with a dangling participle, in your um, <laughs> chat, there is an attempt to write a post-singularity story. It's hard to write a post-singularity story. By definition, we don't know what's on the other side of that singularity. But in this one, what's happened is we have added to our brains because we've done that before. Uh, we have a fish cerebellum. We ha share a, a medulla and a back cortex with other mammals. Um, there's the primate cortex, which was layered on top of that. And on top of uh, all of that, we have layered on things called prefrontal lobes, which no other animal has, which enable us to extrapolate, to empathize what it might be like to be another person or to extrapolate mm -hmm. forward in time the possible consequences of our actions. And so we've done this many times. And I have proof that these really are separate entities because in New Zealand, I stood at the edge of a 140-foot bridge with my ankles bound and I had to find a way to get over the edge when I stood I would went doop -de -doop -de -doop -de -doop, right up to the edge <laughs> because most of those parts of the brain are used to the prefrontals making policy decisions but when I got to that edge and was looking over I suddenly felt the Cro-Magnon and the primate and the reptile were going say what boss <laughs> And um, they were going on strike, but I, the prefrontals had a secret ally, and it was a part of the brain that is dominant in males uh, much farther down, because my then fiancé was watching, and no <laughs> way I was going to fail this effort to go six more inches, and as soon as sex helped the part of me that knew they had a good safety record in abstract i knew i knew they had a good safety record but the chromatin and the the roman and the primate weren't listening but the gonads did I went, over, I went over and as soon as i was plummeting down they all reconverged and they said oh i get it it's a ride <laughs> Did you go with the AJ Hackett Company? Oh, it was this bridge in New Zealand. We were taking, we took a raft down the river and then climbed up the hill and jumped off back to the raft. She said that she would never marry a man who hadn't bungee jumped or jumped out of a perfectly good airplane at 10,000 feet. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> I jump off. Wow. I offered to jump out the door of an airplane in Leadville, Colorado, but she said that didn't count on the tarmac. 
<laughs> so I begged and I wheedled and I whined and I moaned and she said, all right, wimp, you can have a parachute. <laughs> it's like this joke she told me the other day. This very bright four-year-old asks his physician mom, where does poo come from? She says, well, I'm going to treat you with respect. I'm going to tell you all about food and digestion. And she goes through it all and explains how it goes all the way through. And he looks puzzled, but he trusts her and he nods and he says, ah, okay, so what about Tigger? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a three second joke. I was wondering if that's where it was going. It actually reminds me of the first time that my oldest asked me where babies come from. And he was like two. And I start trying to explain sex to him. My my current license plate right now. Oh, really? Eat or is my favorite, personally. So I have one more question. And then Kit may have another question. And so one of the things that really upset me about your uplift universe is that there are no uterine replicators and specifically in um there are no there are no un representatives (laughs) uterine replicators oh Uh, and uh, and this is particularly upsetting to me because sylvie is required to have three children before she's 30 and the toll that pregnancy takes on the female body is a very real thing and I'm just wondering, why can't we have some re- uterine replicators in our lovely tech world where we're manipulating genes? Because when faced with that likelihood, the men went on strike and suddenly the women didn't have anybody pulling boxes off upper closet shelves. <laughs> um, what? You no, know, I mean, for, um, I can't do bricking everything. I know. I'm just curious. I'm just just curious. I love the books. (laughs) I've known some women who liked the experience. You packed two (laughs) in less than a year, and I think that that is that's the sort of thing that would turn me off on it. But I was just thinking today about how stupid Freud, he was a genius um, in his younger years, but how stupid he was with this stupid penis envy thing. I mean, my God, you you guys make life what the heck? <laughs> you make life. I can't do that. Um, about penis envy, uh, to be very careful. Oh, God. Um, yeah, that's not a thing, and it's not because I get to make life. It's because it just seems like it would be in the way all the time. <laughs> it is in the way a lot of the time. <laughs> it seems very inconvenient. <laughs> My wife says, take good care of it. I have uses, but... But... Uh, you slept d- that thing around. Um, right. Yeah. I don't understand why men's bicycles have the high bar right? that makes it difficult to get Why is that? It's so weird. In glory season, there's a scene where the visiting alien, who's a man from the rest of human civilization, it's the first time they've had contact in, in about a thousand years, he's being rescued by the by Maya, the central character, and she's got a message off and some rebels have shown up with horses to to help them escape from the prison. And there's one horse that's got this great big throne on it because men obviously can't ride horses. Um, You know, it's it's a women's thing. (laughs) 
And the guy goes, <laughs> what? And he reaches under, he topples the whole thing and leaps on the back. And all the women go. <laughs> they say, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Doesn't that hurt? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, you look at all these cowboy movies and, you're, and you go, huh, when you get right down to it, how, what, <laughs> how, how, do, how does that even happen? So we're, we're getting... I do love your clan of secret oh, female I, horse Oh, yeah, the horse riders. girls are great. I love the horse girls. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's, that's in, of course, that's, of course, in um, Infinity Shore. Yeah. 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 So um, why why did they but, bring horses and not dogs to Jijo? Um, I mean, the dogs were the advantage that let us drive the Neanderthals extinct. I know. It's just too much of an advantage. Dogs are too much of an advantage. You hear that, Red? <laughs> That's why we would bring them, though. <laughs> just I saying. have. I have the, also, also carnivores. They're not carnivores. Have, They're omnivores. Well, I have the strongest. I have the. I have the smartest, best dog I ever had right now. His name is Neutron. So, anyway, one last question. Go ahead, Kip. One last question. Okay. One of my favorite characters in the novels is Asks, uh, our favorite Trachy from Jijo. What drove you to develop his viewpoint and and really that of Jofer and Trachy in general for their collective consciousness? Was that something that was like really important for you to get into? when you were showing the wide, diverse array of aliens in the Galactic Society? Well, uh, diversity of consciousness shows up pretty early in my work. I mean, in Sundive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Memoir, in that same series in Brightness Reef, Emerson Dunit um, has to navigate around the damage in his brain. And, of course, that's what the autistic characters in existence, in various types of autistic parts of the spectrum, they have to uh, negotiate this. So the notions of what is consciousness and, and how you negotiate with your many selves, well, I've already talked about that, about how you have to negotiate with your internal selves. Most of it, us, most of the time, do it fairly seamlessly. And we need to become more conscious of the difficulties of those who have some problem making these assignments of role, roles um, as, as clear and seamless as most of us make it seem most of the time under this fiction that's called consciousness. Having this negotiation process be explicit seemed a, a, a fairly, when you put it that way, it seems a fairly straightforward thing to try to portray as an alien characteristic. The necessity to negotiate among your multiple component selves. So, you know, what you do when you're creating aliens is you try to come up with some set of traits that make evolutionary sense, by the way, together, but you make them as far uh, strange as you can, and then you do something I did in the Uplift War, and that is you imply that the alien you're seeing is actually pretty good at being at the human end of that spectrum. Like, for instance, um, uh, Utha Kalfing, the, mm -hmm. the Timbrimi ambassador, I made him as clever and witty as I could, and then had him say, I'm what passes for a really dull, responsible guy. 
thereby implying a completely different bell curve. And the same was yep. true of his companion, Kalt. Right. Or was it both? Which one was it? Kalt. Um, he keeps trying to tell jokes, failing utterly. But he says that I am what passes for a real card in a cut up among my, among my <laughs> people. And that's why they told me to be to come on over and be an ambassador to humans. It's a trick that implies more difference than I was actually able to convey. And so I have now revealed some of my secrets and um, those of you who are interested in more methods um, for getting into writing the good stuff, you can find the links in the description box below. Isn't that the phrase? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what a feral um, um, carnivore uh, cat from Canada has anything to do with it, but there's a <laughs> <laughs> a lynx in the description. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh dear lord. <laughs> uh, and, and with that, let me finish up by urging you all to be assertively optimistic in these days, because. Whereas one side of our political civil war is vastly crazier than the other right now, they are both crazy with sanctimonious gloom. And I'm going to put as my last thing there this one here because it's my rant, my TED talk about the addictive disease of sanctimony and self-righteousness which is endemic on the good guy side of this phase of the American Civil War. Uh, it's crippling on the other side. And this is ridiculous. I mean, my generation had an anthem from one of the great uh, films called Network. And the anthem was, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And sure, okay, that was fun. Uh, watch the movie Network. It's really very, very good. But... I'm sick of it. <laughs> One evening, my children, I made them watch while the Curiosity rover was lowered to Mars at the end of a crane from a rocket Sky that crane. had parachuted, it steered a parachute down to a tiny oval on this planet after an aeroshell had threaded the th a thin atmosphere at 20 million miles away. And I jumped up and I screamed up from the balcony, I'm as proud as heck, and I'm not going to take your damn pessimism anymore. Snap out of it! <laughs> and so, with that in mind, because we can Remarkable solve our problems better if we believe in ourselves, we are a mighty people, a spectacular people. We can solve problems. We can cure injustices that the last thousand generations of our ancestors took for granted. So I'm going to leave you with this little piece of advice, a song. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you <laughs> if you're young at heart. So go thou forth, okay? Convert your neighbors to being proud and saying, I'm a member of a civilization, okay? Sounds right. good, Mr. Ryan. If you do Mr. that, Ryan. you'll have paid for this. Okay. Thank you so okay. much. Sounds good. Please make sure to check out the Legendarium podcast. You can contact us on Reddit, Twitter, Discord. If you really like us, go listen to the main Legendarium team, support them on Patreon. 
Thank you, Horizon Brave, for getting this all started, and Craig for loaning us this corner of his media empire. Our intro and outro music is Galactic Damages by Jingle Punks. Uplift Team signing off. Bye.